Ezra chapter 3 is where we are this morning. We finished up our time of singing with that well-known song. Maybe it's a well-known song to you. Maybe it's the first time you sang it, but it's called The Heart of Worship. And there's a story behind the song, which I'm sure many of you know. And I'll keep it simple, but it was written by a man by the name of Matt Redman. He was a worship leader at Soul Survivor Church in Watford, England. And they were a kind of a large church ministry and a lot happening in the church and a lot of people were coming to the church and, and they had you know loud music and, and loud celebration and pretty much everything they did was big and bang and all that kind of stuff and very successful in getting people to come and to attend. But as the leadership thought through what was happening in the church, in particular the pastor, he was concerned about something that was just missing. And so he made a very drastic decision, and he unplugged all the technology. He unplugged the sound system, unplugged the worship team. He unplugged. So get this, on a Sunday morning, large facility, no drums, no guitar, no piano, no microphone, just God's people. And they gathered in the auditorium for worship. And at first, it was kind of awkward. What are we going to do? Until the people started to realize, well, they've got voices and they have hearts. And so one person would begin a song and people would join in the song. When the song was over, someone else would begin another song that they knew and people would start to sing and then someone would stand up and pray and people would pray with them. And so you had this kind of refreshing, spontaneous kind of worship taking place. And of course, Matt Redman would say that this was not necessarily, uh, uh, you know, to set the stage for what worship should, like, should be like always in the church, but it was something that happened for that moment so that this particular church could get back to the heart of worship. He says it's a song of confession, a song of commitment, and in some ways, a song of hope. Let me remind you of the lyrics. When the music fades and all is stripped away, and I simply come, longing just to bring something that's of worth, that will bless your heart, I'm coming back to the heart of worship. And it's all about you, Jesus. See, it's, friends, it's a song of that's saying it's all about you, Jesus. It's not about me. It's not about my entertainment. It's not about what, what I am receiving here. It's like, oh, this is a cool place. It's, it's coming to say, Lord, here I am, and I give myself to you. It's a big difference there. Well, as we come to Ezra 3, we find the people of God having been stripped away of their freedom to worship. And part of the reason is because they were taken captive 70 years prior, taken from Jerusalem, taken from Judah, exiled in Babylon, and as such, they no longer had the temple. And the temple was the heart of where worship would be celebrated for the people of Israel. And in exile, they did their best. They would pray they established really the synagogue there while they were in exile. 
But now they are coming back to Jerusalem because of the decree of Cyrus. And they're coming back and they're coming back to the heart of worship. They're coming back to this place where worship now is being revived. It's being restored among the people. And I want you to, in particular, notice verse 11. Because this is the cry, the song that they sang in summary form here. For He, that is God, is good. For His steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. This phrase, this statement, this song is repeated throughout the Psalms. It's in many places in the Old Testament Scriptures. And it's an expression of God's covenant promise that God's love endures forever toward Israel. No matter the sin, no matter the rebellion, no matter the wickedness of the people of Israel, God was committed to them. And sometimes that commitment meant that they would actually have to go through judgment. That's what a loving father does. He disciplines his children so that they will return And that's what they had experienced in their years of exile. So the song is a reminder of God's covenant with them, a covenant, a promise that they are now seeing take shape in their return to the promised land. God is bringing worship back to Israel. Friends, this is no small moment in the history of Israel. This is a joyful time. This is a significant event. And so this morning, as we look at this passage, I want us to see unfolding for us some very practical, helpful tools, four dynamics of covenant worship. Four dynamics that we see modeled for us, not necessarily an exhaustive list of of the things that are necessary or should be present in worship, but certainly four things that kind of step out of this text to help us think about how we then are to worship God out of His covenant with us. I wonder, have you drifted? Have you come to the place where you come and you sing the songs and you don't even know what you're singing? Or maybe you're sitting or standing there and, you know, when we're singing songs together and you're like, man, that guy's really good on the guitar and you're focusing in on that. Or, man, the drums are really, really good today. I really like hearing the drums. As opposed to stepping back and actually allowing those things to put you in a place where your attention is on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not, not a wrong thing to say. Hey, he did a good job with the guitar and the drums are helpful. But the point of all that is to focus our attention on Christ. It's always good for us to evaluate our worship and to seek to adjust it so that it aligns with what God is calling us to. And just like Matt Radman and the people of Soul Survivor Church, we must allow God's Word to guide us, to check our motives, to shape what we love, to focus our attention on Christ. And so as we study this passage, I want you to be asking, am I guilty of this kind of worship drift in my life? And then as a church, we want to be asking the very important questions. Are we guilty of these failures in our worship? Have we lost our way? And if so, how do we maintain a heart of worship, a heart of covenant worship? 
So let's think through these four dynamics. Take them one at a time. The first one I'm calling united worship. United worship. Look at verse 1 again. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Now if you remember, when they came to the territory, the people went off into their own towns. We saw that at the beginning of of chapter 2, verse 1. At the end of chapter 2, verse 70, they went and settled in their towns. Part of coming back was coming to settle in the land. It was to go to the various towns of their ancestors and to, in a sense, set up shop. Places may have been rubble. There may have been people living in those locations, but they went back to their old ancestral locations that God had laid out for them when they came into the promised land. A wonderful time for them, a sober time for them. So they were in their land for a season, but at an appointed time, it tells us here, the seventh month, when that came, they gathered together as one man. They left their homes vulnerable and traveled to Jerusalem and united as one man together. Their individual freedoms were set aside for their corporate identity and unity. Hear that. Now, we're living in a culture today that is so individualistic that, that we forget the corporateness of what it means to be the body of Christ. You might not feel like you need to be gathering with God's people, but boy, do you ever need to be gathering with God's people. <laughs> right? There's something about that unity, there's something about that collectivity that is important, that community is necessary. We saw that last week. My friends, it's important that we also see here the gathering of people included both individuals and leaders. We notice Joshua. He was the religious leader along with his priests. Then you have Zerubbabel, and he was the political leader along with his family. These were the leaders. These are the ones that kind of set the tone. They said, this is what we're going to do, and this is how we're going to do it. And friends, it's a reminder to us that even in the church, there must be those who are placed in leadership by God who can shepherd the body of Christ to rightly worship the Lord. Yet when they come to worship, they worship as one man. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this at all, but we don't have big chairs on the platform that we sit in. When it's time to sing, where do you find me as your teaching pastor? I'm down with you. Why? Because I am serving in my giftedness as part of a leader of this church, but when it comes time to worship, we are united together as one man. That's the point. That's the picture. But we're all gathered for the same purpose, to worship and glorify Jesus Christ. So we're we're united as a people, but we're also united with a common priority. And what was their priority in worship? Well, Cyrus had declared that they could return to Jerusalem and that they could rebuild the temple. That was their goal. That was their their priority. But something is surprising in this passage, isn't it? Now think about this. Let's just say you're going to build a house, and you lay out the blueprints, and you figure out everything that you want. you got this flat piece of land, and you're going to figure out, I want a house. This is what it's going to look like. And so you begin building, and you start building the kitchen. And you put the cabinets in and the, you know, the, the countertop and the sink and then the plumbing. And you're like, wait a second, that's not how we build houses. Or maybe you start with the landscaping in the backyard. And although that may be a good thing, you like landscaping, 
That's not usually how you do it. Usually you build the house first and then you work into the smaller parts. But what Israel does here is they don't build the temple first. Their priority is to build the altar. Now, friends, this is a statement. This is significant. Hear this. It, doesn't, it isn't so much what the temple looks like that is important, but what is taking place in or at the temple. A temple without an altar is just a building. See, they understood what needed to happen first was the altar to be built so that on that altar they could begin the sacrifices, what hadn't taken place for 70 years. The offering of sacrifices on the altar. Friends, this is worship coming back to the people of God. This is them being restored back to their place and the beginnings of worship happening once again in the temple, although the temple isn't erected yet. The priority is that the sacrifice is central. And for us, the priority is not so much the building that we're in. And if you remember through COVID, we met outside in the parking lot. We didn't have a building. What mattered was that Christ was at the heart of our worship. That sacrifice once for all, who's paid for our sins. Buildings are great. Buildings are nice. I'm thankful we're in this building, but this building is not the church. It's the people who have bowed the knee to Christ who come together identifying themselves as a local body that are the church. And so friends, the priority for us is to keep Christ at the center of it all. Not only are they united as a people, united in priority, but they're also united in power. Did you catch in verse 3? It says, they set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the land. Now, NIV says, despite. New American ESV says, um, because. And the idea here, though, is Look, when, when you gather as one, when you are afraid, what's the last thing you want to do? The last thing you want to do is be alone. When you're afraid, you want to gather together. They were coming into a territory, being led by God, but still there are people that would be somewhat dangerous. And we certainly are going to see that as we continue on in the book of Ezra, even if we were to go to the book of Nehemiah, that the people who are living the lands wanted to stop what was going on and actually were willing to be physical. It's a reality to it. I mean, they've been living there for a number of years, and you're coming back, and you're invading their, their territories and their homes. There's some fear there. But they unite together to be empowered. You see, this is one of the reasons why we gather here on Sunday morning, to be a place of safety and refuge, to sing songs of praise, to pray, to be guided by God's Word, to be encouraged, to be strengthened, to be empowered to leave and to face this world we live in. We come and we are united and we are empowered. And if we hadn't come, the likelihood is we wouldn't be empowered. 
Because we wouldn't have all of the wonderful things that God does for us as we gather together. Friends, there is gospel power at work in the body when it gathers together as one man to worship Christ. When we sing, we don't just sing praises to our God. We do. We're called to do that. But if you remember what the book of Ephesians says, it says sing to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And the one another means when I hear this person belting out a song, you know, better is one day. And they mean it. And it's from the heart you're encouraged to say, well, I believe that too. And we sing to one another. We encourage one another in our songs, in our prayers, in our words of affirmation. The world says there is strength in numbers. The Word of God says there is strength in uniting together as God's church. Friends, when we leave our homes on Sunday morning and are heading to church, we should be longing for and anticipating worshiping together as one man with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, joining our voices and hearts together, fighting to keep Jesus at the center and leaving strengthened and empowered to live for him. Be thankful for the gathering of the body of Christ and for what it does to you as an individual and for the church at large. United worship. Secondly, I want you to notice obedient worship. Obedient worship. If you remember, the people of Israel, when they were delivered from their bondage in Egypt, they decided, we're going to worship God. So give us all your earrings and your gold and all that kind of stuff. We're going to melt it down and we're going to create a golden calf to worship Yahweh. And we will attribute to this golden calf our deliverance from Egypt. And of course, Moses and God were not pleased. And friends, in today's world, this is what it would look like Hey, God, we made this golden calf as a representation of you, and we wanted to do it out of love for you and attribute what you have done to that golden calf. And God would say, I'm not interested. It's an idol. And they would say, yes, but this is what we feel is right to do. And if this is what we feel, it must be right, because how I feel is far more important because it's what I feel in my worship. And God says, it doesn't matter what you feel. What matters is that you're obedient in your worship. And so, of course, what happens? The people here, when they gather together, they don't make the same mistake. No, their worship will be shaped and fashioned according to what is written in the Word. Notice what it says in verse 2. They offered burnt offerings as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Notice verse 4. They kept the Feast of Booths as it was written in the rule, according to the rule. No, that's, that's the burnt offering. They offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule. There was a standard. That standard was what God said. It was his word. It was his rule. This is going to be the basis of their worship. And now that they were back in Jerusalem, they would begin to resurrect the offerings and the feasts commanded by God in the law of Moses, the rhythm of burnt offerings and the rhythm of the feast now 
that was stripped away was now being restored back to Israel. The burnt offerings, of course, would once again provide for Israel's atonement and ultimately pointed to Christ. And through being obedient to the festivals, the people of Israel would be reminded of God's faithfulness to their frailty. If you look at verse 4 in particular, they kept the Feast of Booths. This was one of the feasts that was mandated by all males to come and participate in. And it was a reminder to the people. It's also called the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a reminder of Israel's time in the wilderness. And they would build these kind of lean-to booths, whatever. But it was a reminder during this week-long festival of their frailty and their utter dependence on Yahweh. And friends, we always need to be reminded of that. Israel needed to be reminded of that, that he is the only sustainer. They are fragile, but he is the one who sustains them. Now, friends, in a world where the church is looking to be innovative, to be relevant in culture, to be attractive in the community, there's always a temptation to turn to all sorts of worldly ideas and practices to get a crowd or to maintain attendance. Friends, the church was not created to entertain people. It wasn't created to attract them with these secular strategies. No, at the heart of obedient worship is the desire to be driven by the Word of God. And we're doing our best here at Gateway to do that. That our worship would reflect the heart of God revealed in His Word. And what we must see here is that the people of Israel can finally worship God in obedience. They have been liberated by God through Cyrus to come back and now begin worship afresh. The question is always, what does God want in our worship? Well, so far we've seen he wants our unity and he wants our obedience. Third, Joyful worship. Joyful worship. Now that the altar had been built and the offerings and festivals were being restored, the people were ready to begin laying the foundation for the temple, but they needed first to gather the necessary resources. So notice in verse 7, the gathering takes place. They give money to, to masons and carpenters, they also provide resources, food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon and to get them ultimately to Joppa. This was no small ordeal. And they had been given, as we see there, this grant from Cyrus, king of Persia. So not only did Cyrus send them, but he also sent them with the resources so they could purchase the materials. They could hire the people to make sure those, those trees were cut down, those trees were stacked, they were, they were put on boats and taken you know, by the ocean to those particular places, in particular to Joppa, which on a side note is where I used to live when I lived in Israel, modern-day Jaffa. See, already the rebuilding of the temple was being broadcast to the peoples of the land. The people of Tyre, the people of Sidon, and the testimony of God's faithfulness and provision was on display. So they were gathering resources. Notice, secondly, they're laying the foundation. This is verses 8 and 9, right? 
What's interesting about the laying of this foundation of the temple, uh, it, it, what's interesting here is that is who was actually doing the manual labor. And what we find here is Zerubbabel and his family and Jeshua and his family, the priests, the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem, they're all united together to do this work. I mean, it's one thing to travel 900 miles to Jerusalem from Babylon, knowing that when you get there, the job is to do hard labor and build a temple. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of like saying we're going to go on a mission trip, but we're not flying, we're walking. When we get there, we're going to do work. Um, and that work's going to be hard. I mean, this was no small thing that God was calling them to, he, but he was, he, was, uh, he was stirring it up. He was making it happen. And what's important is, is that not only did they need workers, but they also needed people to be appointed as supervisors. The Levites supervised the work, the priests supervised the workmen, and the point here is that in order to begin laying the foundation of the temple, there needed to be a strategy of organization. Leaders supervising workers and the work actually taking place. And friends, anytime the body of Christ seeks to gather as a church for worship or for work, some need to supervise and some need to serve. And it's a reminder of the mutual submission that is often necessary in being God's church. So on Sunday, you might be leading a congregation in worship. On that following Saturday, you, you might be being told by someone where to take a table and where to put a chair. Your roles shift based on whatever the ministry and the work that needs to take place. There's a mutual submission that takes place, and we respect that. We love that. That's just the kind of practical cooperation that's necessary to keep ministry going in local churches. Well, this is all kind of backdrop for getting now to verse 10 and 11. Because it says, and when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph. Those are all the, the singers with symbols to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. Again, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. Not just in a way that they wanted to, but in a way that was laid out by God through King David. And friends, it's easy to get bogged down in the details of the materials, the workers, the organization, even the celebration without stopping and, 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 and pausing and, 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 and seeing the wonder of what we're reading here. Think about what it must have been like 70 years prior as uh, the Babylonians came through and just, just plowed down Jerusalem and, and, and just wiped uh, the, the temple flat. Who would have ever thought that this day would come? But then look at the promise of Jeremiah. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 33. That's going to be up on the screen, but I want you to see it in your own Bible too. Here's what Jeremiah says, beginning at verse 7, and then we'll go to verse 10. He says, I will restore the fortunes of Judah. This is him prophesying for God. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and rebuild them as they were at first. Verse 10, thus says the Lord, in this place of which you say, it is a waste without man or beast. In the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate without man or inhabitant or beast, thou, there shall be heard again 
the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voices of those who sing, and they that bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Does that sound familiar? For I will restore the fortunes of the land as at first, says the Lord. See, Jeremiah 33, 11 was beginning to be fulfilled. Against all human likelihood, God's people saw God's goodness again. This is a staggering moment, friends. We can just read it casually and say, yeah, this is part of the history of Israel. Oh, but friends, what a history this is. All your people are taken captive. Your capital city is destroyed. The temple where you worship has been left in in ruins. But God is not done with you. And so they start singing, for He is good. His steadfast love endures, how long? Forever. And they are reminded of God's covenant faithfulness to them. God's steadfast love is the Hebrew word, Hesed, and refers to God's covenant love, his promise of loyalty, his promise of faithfulness to his people. Turn to Psalm 100, if you would, please. Again, a familiar psalm. Here's what the psalmist says. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his, and we are his people, and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. For, (laughs) you can do all this. Why? For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. You can imagine them singing this very song. So what does this joyful worship look like? Well, singing, praising, giving thanks, great shouts. And friend, there is a a reminder here that there are situations or circumstances in our lives that we feel have no chance of ever turning around, right? son or daughter who seems to have left behind or forgotten all the claims of Christ. They're wallowing in the mire of sin in the far country. What's going to happen to them? How can, how can anything good come out of this? Is there any hope? And then by God's grace, the Father brings them back. Why? He's good. His steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness is to all generations. And you could put, you know, example after example of things that you've experienced that you know that are your burdens in that formula. Friends, Yahweh can make you sing again. You fall flat on your face in sin and you wander in that sin for a season, and you're like, Lord, how can you ever accept me again? His steadfast love endures forever. 
He's good. And you wrestle and struggle with your own heart, just wondering how is it possible? And God says, oh, let me tell you, it is possible. Come. Come and bow the knee once again. Come and be restored. Come and enjoy the fellowship with me once again. I'm a good God. I'm a covenant God. I'm a faithful God. He can take rebellion and turn it into rejoicing. (laughs) He can take hopelessness and turn it into praise. This is joyful worship, friends. United worship. Obedient worship. Joyful worship. The last one is hopeful worship. Now let's just read a little bit of verse 12 and 13 here. But many of the priests were told, and the Levites, the head of the father's houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy. So you got these two different groups of people. You got this one group of, seems like, older men. And don't think older, crotchety men. Okay, Just think older men who were somehow old enough to see Solomon's temple in all its glory. So they they had to be pretty old. And then you're asking yourself the question, and they made this journey? Apparently they did. And they're looking now at the foundation of the temple. And they are weeping. And they're not just weeping softly off in the corner. We're told they're weeping aloud. (laughs) This is all the while all the other people, the younger generation, are like, Woohoo! The Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. He's a faithful God. And over here you have priests and Levites who remember Solomon's temple and they're weeping. And both are loud. What in the world is going on here? Well, there's two possibilities. The, the priests are probably grieving because they can tell from the foundation that this temple will not compare to Solomon's temple. And of course, on one level, that's understandable. Likely their weeping also might be grief over their, the unfaithfulness of their forefathers who remained steadfast in their rebellion of God so that that former temple was destroyed and they were taken into captivity. And friends, there's an understandable side to that. But hear this, there can be a danger of living in the past and not being able to rejoice in the present. Yes, Solomon's temple had been destroyed and Israel had been judged, but God who keeps his covenant is on the move again. He is fulfilling his promises again. He's returning his people to their land. He is restoring the sacrifices and the festivals. I wonder if you're ever like me at times. You're singing a song in worship and you're struck by the words of a stanza or a chorus and it reminds you of some past sin, some struggle, some failure, something that you're ashamed of, some regret. 
And so in your heart, as you worship, it becomes a worship wrestling match between shame and regret and forgiveness and freedom. You ever been there? And you have to fight in your heart to remember that the Lord is good and His steadfast love endures forever. Remember, Satan wants you to wallow in the mire of your past sins. He wants you to dwell on the shame and the regret that may rise up in your heart. He wants you to stop rejoicing in what God is doing now in your life and instead focus on your failures of the past. Oh, it's understandable to look back and to see and and to grieve and to have regret, but don't be so consumed by that that you cannot see what God is doing now. So you must fight to believe God's covenant with you, His promise to forgive you of your sins, His promise that you are one of His children, a part of the family of God, His promise that you are clothed, not in your righteousness, because that could never cover anything, but you're covered in His righteousness. That His promise that you have the Holy Spirit to walk alongside of you is still true. And that His promise is to rescue you and bring you safely home into heaven. Friends, this is a bittersweet, hopeful worship that we can fight through because it's rooted in God's covenant. Psalm 30, verses 4 and 5 say this. Sing praises to the Lord, O you His saints, and give thanks to His holy name for His anger is but for a moment, and His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. It's right to weep over our sin. But it's also right to rejoice in God's forgiveness and His restoration, and the new life He's called us to, and the ways that even in spite of our sinfulness and the damage that has taken place, He can still take a life and use it for His glory. You may be here today, and your life has been broken by sin. You've maybe committed adultery. You've you've gone through a divorce, or maybe you've, I don't know, been in jail or something like that. Whatever it might be, God can still chart a path for your life to bring glory to Him. Why? Because God is good and His steadfast love endures forever. I want to bring this to a close and just pull five just brief thoughts kind of from this passage just again to help us in our worship. Number one, we need the Scriptures to saturate all we do, don't we? We see that in our text. They went back to the Scriptures. They went back to what God said. They went back to the standard that was laid out by Moses. We always need to allow the Scriptures to teach us and to mold us and to shape us. We need to submit ourselves to His Word. How we worship should be a reflection 
of what God says about our worship. Secondly, we need Christ to be central in all we do. Just like they erected the altar being the priority, so Christ should be central in all that we do. So let's do our best to do things well for our Lord. Let's sing, let's play instruments, let's preach, let's teach, let's serve, not in a way that draws attention to ourselves, but in a way that reflects people to see Christ. Third, we need the mission to drive all we do. Well, whose mission? Well, as a church, we've done our best to try and consolidate what we think is Christ's mission for us as a church. You've seen it many, many times in your bulletin that says this, we exist to glorify God by building a community of believers who are actively committed to knowing, applying, and proclaiming the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just like Israel was given a mission to go back and to rebuild the temple, so we have a mission to be God's church, to represent Christ, to proclaim his word, to to strengthen one another through the word. This is what drives our thinking. So as a church, when we think through ministries or endeavors, we're always wanting to put it through that grid of the mission that God has called us to. Fourth, we need the church to support us in all that we do. You can say the people of the church to give, to serve, to pray for, and to be present. It's one thing to say, I've got this vision to build a temple, but if the people aren't willing to get up and to leave their homes and to go and to be a part of what's going on, it's not going to get built. And so we rally together, we unite together over the unique situation that God may have us as a church to be in. Yesterday was an example of that. We had a brother who's been taken by the Lord home, and we rallied together to provide the necessary resources and support so a memorial service can take place. It's just one example. Number five, we need God to be praised in all we do. He is the reason why we gather. He is worthy of our praise. Now friends, this was a significant moment in the life of Israel. Can you imagine what it would be like if we were not allowed to worship? Well, COVID hit and we started to Imagine what that would be like. But all through COVID, I know for those of you that truly love the Lord, your heart was beating saying, when can we meet? How can we meet? How can we maintain being a church? Our hearts were in it. We want to do this. This is important. This is what God wants. He wants a people that are living out His covenant in worship, both individually and corporately, and to do that for his glory. Lord, help us today. We are a frail people. We are a fickle people. We're living in a, in a world, Lord, that is pumping out ideology that is opposed to your truth. And Lord, even within the church, there is pressure to conform to embracing and using uh, tactics and methods that the world 
seems to use for different purposes. But Lord, help us to be committed to what you want us to do, Lord, and that is to keep you central, to allow your word to drive us. And Lord, that our worship will be a reflection of what your word says, that our hearts would be genuine and committed, Lord, to seeing that you are good and that your loving kindness, your faithfulness, your steadfast love endures forever towards us. Lord, help us to marinate in these truths. Help us to think about where we are with you. Maybe there's someone here that needs to come back to that right heart of worship. Lord, would you be glorified today? Would you draw us? Would you, would you uh, stir us up in such a way that we would see our hearts for what they really are? And humble ourselves before you, Lord, to, to, to seek forgiveness, to be restored, and to be thankful for the privilege of worshiping you. In your precious name, amen. amen.